I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Warning, this episode contains explicit language, and it begins with strong opinions about pretzels. I like a thin, crispy, or thinish, crispy pretzel. I don't like the very flat pretzel chips. Hmm. And I eat it in the manner of a lumber mill processing lumber. Yes. I, that's how I do it. Right. Do you, do you do like a bundle or you do one at a time? One, oh, God. One at a time. Always <laughs> one at a time. No, you got to get a few to No, that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. <laughs> This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Before we get into the show, heads up, Houston, I am coming to you. I'm doing a special Cascatelli-themed dinner event at Weights and Measures in Midtown. I'll be in conversation with Culture Map Houston food editor Eric Sandler. And get this, your ticket includes a three-course meal featuring Cascatelli plus a box of pasta to take home. It's dinner and a show. This is through the Houston chapter of Tufts University alums. I went to Tufts, but it's open to the public, so everyone is welcome. This is on Monday, March 7th, so just four weeks away, and tickets are limited, so get yours now at sporkful.com slash live. All right, let's get into the show. Michael Ian Black first got famous in the 90s as a cast member on the MTV sketch comedy show The State. Since then, he's starred in a bunch of TV shows, including another period on Comedy Central and movies like Wet Hot American Summer. He's also written more than 10 books for both adults and kids, including Navel Gazing, True Tales of Bodies, Mostly Mine, But Also My Mom's, which I know sounds weird. Yes, that's the whole title. He talks a lot in that book about body image and aging. He's also hosted a long-running podcast called Mike and Tom Eat Snacks with his friend Tom Cavanaugh. Michael is a deep thinker, including about snacks. He has even more to say about pretzels. I eat pretzel sticks in a very specific way. I do not deviate from that. So I go in, go in, go in. Then I kind of hold them in my mouth, go in, go in, go in, go in with another one. So I'm bundling now, but just one at a time. And then there's something textually very satisfying to me about swallowing the sort of mostly chewed pretzel, but not entirely chewed pretzel. So I'm sort of feeling it descend into my larynx and down into my stomach. Do you ever get like poked on the inside? Yes. yes. And you enjoy that? I don't enjoy the poke. Like you have to be, like you really have to be masterful about this. Mm. Uh, I actually eat my pretzel sticks the same way, like the wood chipper approach, although I put multiple sticks in my mouth at once and chomp, chomp, chomp them down. uh Uh-huh. But my, my, what I don't love about the pretzel sticks is they feel like they have a bad ratio of exterior to interior because so you get a lot of salt on the exterior without much unseasoned inside to counteract that. So they're very salty. I like a very salty chip. Okay. That, that, that is a real problem with me. That is, in, that is enhancing my bloated appearance. Yeah, yeah you're retaining a lot of water, Michael. A lot of, re- a lot of water. <laughs> it's a real problem. To meet up with Michael, I took the car ferry from where I live on Long Island across Long Island Sound to Connecticut, where he lives. Michael and I are both suburban dads, a little older and chubbier, slower and lamer than we used to be. We're domesticated. 
and I wanted to connect with him on that suburban dad level. So I wanted to eat with him at a place he likes to go with his family. He picked a pizzeria called Tuzi Pazza. So, um, so where are we here, Michael? Set the scene for us. We're in one of the country's only jazzerias. I think that's what they're still calling it. <laughs> they, I did notice that sign. Yeah, it's a jazz-themed pizzeria here in the wilds of Connecticut, where I live. Michael and I started off comparing the dinner routines in our respective households. He says most of his fights with his wife happen around that time of day. Sometimes it's the cleaning up. Mm. Sometimes it's the uh, going over the events of the day, which can lead to bickering. Yeah. It really could be anything. Sometimes I run into an issue because I, I, I like to cook. My wife's a good uh, a cook also, but I'm more the one who enjo- who enjoys it. Yeah. Which is a double-edged sword because it means that... And you then become responsible for it. R- responsible, which that I can live with. It's more that like there's a double-edged sword to caring uh-huh. about the food. Right. Because on one hand, it, uh, I get pleasure from putting effort into a, a meal and having it come out well and having my make my family happy. On the other hand, like sometimes like they're just coming, they're rolling in the door at 5.30 and they need dinner at 5.31. The right. kids walk in the door cranky. My wife's been dealing with them, so she's cranky, understandably. And... I've spent the past hour like trying to craft this meal that is, I think it's going to please all the different constituencies that I need to please and and it will be delicious for us. And then when they come in and no one's in a good mood and half the, and the kids don't want to eat the thing I made, then I fall to pieces. That's right. You're devastated at that point <laughs> because you've given everything. Right. And all you want is their approval. Right. All you want is their love, ultimately. And the way that they can show you their love is by enjoying your creation. Right. And when they don't do that, it's like they're rejecting you. Right. So how do I deal with that? You leave them. <laughs> you say I'm going out for a pack of cigarettes and right. you don't come back. You say, I'm, instead of interviewing Michael Ian Black in New York City, where I am frequently, I'm going to choose to take a boat to Connecticut. <laughs> That's right. I won't be back for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rowboat to Connecticut. <laughs> Your kids are teenagers now, right? 17 and 15. Who does more cooking uh, in your house? Quantitatively, my wife. Qualitatively, me. <laughs> Would she agree with that statement? Probably. Like last night I made dinner and she, we, we, we were just on vacation in a foreign land. And when we returned, really all I wanted was something simple because we'd been eating at sort of fancy-ish restaurants for the last 10 days. So I just basically threw some chicken in the oven and some salad and some rice. And she was upset with me because I hadn't planned a a sort of a a more ambitious dinner but i didn't want a more ambitious dinner and as it happened it was exactly it was perfect for me (laughs) what about for her not my problem (laughs) and this is this is a perfect example of the kind of quarreling it wasn't a quarrel she she gently admonished me and then i got defensive that's why sometimes it's better not to care Right. Because if you, like, I would not have gotten, so this, I, the story I told you is one that this is what happened to me last night. I cooked dinner. The kids came back. They were coming back late from camp and they were, they're always exhausted after a day at camp. And so never in a great mood, which puts who, whatever parents are with them, not in a great mood, understandably. And I was emotionally invested in the meal I had prepared. What did you make? Nothing super special, but, but... my younger daughter has really like has gotten pickier and pickier. How old so is I, she? Five. Uh-huh. And I so I, I really 
she'll basically eat pasta, and I really took it upon myself, like, I'm going to try to do something creative that's going to get her to eat a little something with some nutritional value. And we had leftovers from a barbecue from the weekend. Leftover corn and leftover grilled zucchini. So I said to myself, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a big batch of pasta. I'm going to split it. I'll take half of it and add grilled zucchini and corn and some Parmesan cheese and olive oil and salt. And that'll be for my wife and me. I know she'll like that. I know I'll like that. My daughters won't want grilled zucchini in their pasta. But I didn't want to just give them pasta with cheese and sauce. So I took the corn, which my younger one has been eating a little bit of. I took it off the the uh, cob. cob. Thank you for the And I was like, I, I'm going to... I'm gonna, have an elaborate game to get them really into this meal. I melted butter and I said, you're going to get to paint your food. And I gave them a food brush and I said, here's the butter. You can paint it on the, the corn in the bowl yourself. It's, you'll have, it'll be interactive and it will taste good also. And they'll eat some corn. But I was very worked up that this strategy was going to work. I put a lot of pressure on myself. And when they came in already cranky and the younger one said, I don't want this. I got upset. And then my wife, Janie, was just like, I'm just going to go sit in the living room because I, no one in this, at this table is in a good mood right now. I did get the younger one to eat some corn. She did paint the corn and she did eat some of it. And so that felt like a small victory, but not without effort. It's all you can get. It's, look, with a five-year-old, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get small victories. Mm. Congratulate yourself on being a great father. Really? Sure. You got her to eat a little corn. You did better than your wife did. <laughs> she... She removed herself entirely from the situation. <laughs> Should we go up there and order some pizza? Yeah, I can't. I, I don't think I can eat pizza. Okay. But I'm going to get something. So, so you picked a pizza place and now we're not going to eat pizza? I, I picked the pizza place before I had been to France mm. and before I realized that I was going to come back from France feeling morbidly obese. So I feel like I need to to do a little better. I know that at one point in your life you're... Waist size and length on your pants was 30-32. That's right. And then it went up to 32-32. Yes. Where is it now? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's probably still around 32-32. I'd, like I'd like it to get down to about 15-32. <laughs> that sounds very healthy. <laughs> oh, no. I have a very healthy body image. Right. Clearly. I'm doing great. <laughs> Do you remember when you first started to be aware of that? Well, for a long time, I thought I was too skinny. And then one day, I was too fat. Probably around 40, 41, 42, somewhere in there. And part of me is like, Michael, you're, you're rapidly closing in on 50. Like, chill out. Calm down. Like, it's not going to get better for you. So maybe just be all right with it. I can't. So we live in similar sort of areas, these sort of distant suburbs, and I feel like, but we, we you and I both also kind of like go into the city for work somewhat mm -hmm. regularly, and, and the body images and body types that you see when you're in the city versus when you're in the suburbs, right. radically different. Right. So I, I try to like hang out with the suburban dads. Much better. Yeah. <laughs> Much better strategy. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys gave up a long time ago. <laughs> by, the, by that metric, I feel like I'm doing great. Oh, you are. You know, <laughs> by that and, metric, right? You're very handsome. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because coming to see you, so I have two pairs of sneakers. Okay, I, I have my like cool 
City sneakers and my Suburban Dad sneakers. Uh-huh. Um, they're both New Balance sneakers, but one are kind of like funky and they're like the old, the retro New Balance ones. And the other ones are just kind of like jogging shoes for someone who doesn't jog. Right. And I was really torn which to wear to come see you. Wait, let me see if I can identify just by looking at them because I'm not sure I can tell a funky pair of New Balance from a not funky pair. I think of... you'll be able to tell. Oh, those are funky. Yeah. I like those. Blue suede sneakers with yellow netting atop it. And then where the laces are, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a sky blue, orange tongue, red laces. Now that sounds like a riot of colors, I know, but when viewed all together, somehow, inexplicably, it works. Thank you. But then I, you know, I was on the boat to come here, and I thought to myself, why am I putting on airs for Michael? Well, the the rest of you doesn't look that great. I mean, the, <laughs> the FUV T-shirt. I'm not. I'm yeah. not blown away by. It. I mean, it's all right. <laughs> like sort of shitty shorts you wear. I mean, it's, it was really all about the sneakers for you. Yeah, yeah. I, but but I, I was like part of the reason why I wanted to interview you here, sort of in your natural habitat, is because like I feel like we have this kind of like suburban dad uh-huh. commonality, and so I was like I should have just shown up in full on suburban dad mode. Is this not full on? The, the only difference would be the sneakers. I'm guessing. No, th- this is one of my cooler T-shirts. Ooh. If I- <laughs> We have to order because now I'm really hungry. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, let's order. Now, I like the pizzas here. I do I do really like the pizzas. And you'll mm-hmm. see that they're jazz-themed, a lot of them. So you've got like the David S. Ware. That was a jazz musician. The only reason I know that is because it's on the menu. And so I'm just assuming. <laughs> and I've gotten that one before. It's escarole, white beans, garlic sausage, parmesan, and chili oil over a light tomato sauce. Um, that it, sounds really good. It is really good. Uh, I'm actually not a big meat-on-pizza guy. Okay. What about the contadina, which is a vegetable medley of mushrooms, peppers, onion, broccoli, and tomatoes? Too many vegetables? Too many. Because you put the vegetables in the pizza, they release water when they cook, and now the crust gets soggy. The thin crust, feta cheese, plum tomato, hot oil, shredded mozzarella. I mean, I feel like that's a happy compromise, but maybe I'm wrong. I like that. I'm probably going to get a salad of some sort. I think it's going to be the Greek. I like a Greek salad. Let's do it. Thin crust pizzas with the feta cheese, plum tomato... Michael's decision to get salad and his concern for his waistline got me thinking about masculinity. It's something Michael has also thought about a lot over the last few years. Back in 2018, after a string of school shootings committed by boys or men, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times called The Boys Are Not All Right. Michael wrote that it's not socially acceptable for men and boys to talk about emotion and vulnerability. And as a result, he says, quote, Too many boys are trapped in the same suffocating, outdated model of masculinity, where manhood is measured in strength, where there's no way to be vulnerable without being emasculated, where manliness is about having power over others. In 2020, he wrote a book on similar themes called A Better Man, a mostly serious letter to my son. Michael writes about everything from his complicated relationship with his own father to the nuances of ordering coffee versus tea as it relates to manliness. He also talks about the rituals and posturing of traditional masculinity and writes, quote, manhood, or at least my manhood, is quiet and simple and straightforward. I was curious to hear how his approach to manhood relates to food. So I ordered pizza, but I don't like meat on my pizza. Uh You ordered a salad. Right. And it's interesting to me that there's this idea that like meat is masculine. Eating a lot of meat makes you more manly. Yep. So when you go into a restaurant and order a salad for your meal, like is that something that's going through your mind? Like how do you how do you feel about that? So one of the things that I have discovered is that uh, masculinity, 
is more or less, and I would say more, a language more than anything else. And the language is designed to sort out men by social status. And so every single thing that you do as a guy can be put on this scale of masculinity. So you can rank any food as absurd as this is by how masculine it is. So you could say, so you're talking about meat. Yes, meat, for whatever reason, and we could talk about the reasons, is more masculine than vegetables. Do you remember the first time you ordered a salad for your meal (laughs) and felt okay about it? (laughs) No. In my early 20s, when I was living in New York by myself, there was a Greek diner across the street from my apartment building. Every now and again, when I felt like I just needed to replenish my body in some capacity, I would get the Greek salad, which is what I got today. And the Greek salad with chicken can be a very masculine salad. It's a kind of rustic salad. It's got a lot of ingredients. Especially there's grill marks on the chicken. Exactly. And so (laughs) I never felt particular. Actually, I shouldn't say that. Now that, I mean, I haven't thought about this before, but I guess maybe I did at times feel like, oh, geez, I'm ordering a salad here at this diner. Uh, Yeah, I think I did have a kind of consciousness about it. So, so would you, would you, especially when you were a little younger, would, would you have been less likely to order a salad if you were out with other guys? Probably. I probably would have been, yeah. I have a friend who had this exact thing. He's just a guy, just good guy, regular guy. And he was with a dude, a friend of his. They went out to lunch or something, and he ordered a salad. And the friend said something like, you want a purse with that? And my friend is like, are you serious? Like, are we really still going through this kind of like dumb, ritualistic flexing of our masculinity over the fact that I just want some greens? On one hand, it's sort of like, oh, he's just making a dumb joke. On the other hand, yes, but it's so representative of something so destructive. Coming up, Michael and I get much more into this conversation. Why does eating alligator seem more manly than eating chicken? Why is coffee more manly than tea? And how do we move beyond this narrow definition of what it means to be a man? Stick around. Hope you're hungry because it's time for some ads. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in like in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? 
I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... They take cruising to another level, and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I'm feeling great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button-down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Coming up next week on the show, we have a pasta update. It is part eight of Mission Impossible, and we have some big news to share, something I've kept secret for nearly a year. And just a heads up, that episode will drop next Tuesday instead of Monday. Don't miss it. Okay, back to my conversation with Michael Ian Black. Let's just pick it up where we left off. We had ordered, and we were talking about food and masculinity. You could probably very easily rank meats according to masculinity. So we would go, let's say buffalo is probably more masculine than cow. Uh, alligator is probably more masculine than buffalo. Why? 
Uh, and you're not disagreeing with me, right? Like you're going, yeah, that seems right. Right. Well, it feels like it comes down to sort of like the aggressiveness of that's the right. animal. I mean, in my mind, that's exactly right. The reason you would say the alligator's more masculine meat to eat than buffalo is because the alligator itself is a kind of more ferocious or aggressive creature. I don't even know if that's true. It may not be than the buffalo. Yeah, so we would have to we would have to exert more energy or take more risk to kill the alligator. It, it's really like a dominance ritual. Yeah, it, because because eating an animal is in some ways it's like an expression of your dominance over it. Sure. So when you order a salad, you're just saying I'm, I'm dominant over these plants. Right. Like and everybody's like, so that what? wasn't hard. Like, so you pulled the <laughs> lettuce out of the ground, then it That's put up right. a fight. That's right. So like the most manly thing you could eat would be like a T-Rex. Uh, no, the most manly thing you could eat would be a human that you stalked and killed. A human of greater strength than you. Mm. <laughs> a human man of greater strength <laughs> right, than you. Right. So you get into this problem of defining your maleness as that of dominance. And so you can quickly see how that becomes problematic when you're dealing yeah. with how other this, aspects how, of your life. How could this go wrong, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with being willful, being aggressive in certain situations, being competitive in certain situations. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with these ways of navigating our lives. I think there are big problems with if these are the only ways we navigate our lives and we don't allow ourselves as men to to allow the possibilities of other avenues of expression and other ways of being. So what is it about the topic of masculinity that interests you so much? What I realized when I started thinking about it in a more serious way is that it had been a topic that had actually consumed me in my comedy for a long time. Um, when I look back at stuff that I've done, a lot of it has been about subverting sort of traditional masculine ideas. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, growing up feeling kind of out of place with the way I was supposed to represent myself as a guy. I feel like a lot of guys feel like this. And a lot of times that gets mistaken, I think, for there's a kind of uh, conflation between gender identity and sexual identity that may or may not be appropriate as the individual goes. In my case, it was never appropriate, although it was certainly conflated all the time. Well, even by, by your mom. Yeah, by my mom, who is gay or was gay. She's dead now, who thought I was gay and didn't want me to be gay because she was worried about how gay people are treated in the culture. I certainly understand that having grown up in a lesbian household. But it was never a question for me, my own sexuality my masculinity or the way it expressed itself was a constant question, this kind of masculine puffery that I just, I never felt comfortable with. I never felt like it was me. And so I spent much of my childhood, adolescence into early adulthood trying to figure out like, how do I navigate being a guy when I'm not this guy? And it took me a long time to just feel comfortable in my own skin. I agree with what you're saying. this tea is very good. Is now, it? this is a very unmasculine tea. It's an organic green with coconut made from fresh brewed tea. And I drink a lot of tea. And if you want to rank these things, coffee more masculine than tea, black tea more masculine than green tea, green tea sweetened, probably the least masculine of all. That, of course, is what I'm drinking. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, is, there is, there is this, an idea that, that sweet things are... Yes. It's not surprising to me that I, that I think it's, 
I mean, you know, restaurant kitchens are notoriously sort of uh, aggressive male yeah. spaces. But if there has traditionally been a place for women in male-dominated kitchens, it is more often the dessert. The dessert. The, right. pa- the pastry chefs are more often women. The, you know, the, the the people cooking the steaks, not so much. Mm-hmm. And so you can see how that bias can play out and, and can affect people's careers. Right. And you can also see how just on this sort of the, the, the loose terms that we're defining it to this point, how people would get channeled into those careers. And less men are more likely to go into that because of the bias <laughs> against sweetness. It's crazy. But that's the that is the world we live in. But, you know, look, I, I, I agree and I can I, I agree that like. Yes, there's a place for these impulses that are na- these natural impulses to a point. You know, yes, it's demoralizing that we don't have more control over them than we do, and that it's it's demoralizing that they remain such powerful forces in our society. But it's so deeply ingrained. Yes, and it's not just about like society's expectations. I mean, it goes back to before society. Like this is some deep evolutionary shit. Like we are hardwired. And it makes perfect sense from an evolutionary perspective that the men who are the most aggressive, the most eager to assert dominance over others would be the ones who would, and this is not a good thing, but like it's most likely to repopulate or continue to populate the earth. Right, exactly. So so, so it would make sense that over, over millennia that men would become more and more aggressive. Right. We have these impulses that we were talking about, these impulses of aggression and competitiveness and whatever that we give sort of free reign to or freer reign to. But we also, as men, have impulses of empathy, vulnerability, love that we suppress and... Because they're not considered manly. Exactly. And so when everything that you're doing in the language of masculinity ranks you on a scale of least masculine to more masculine and where you fall on that scale determines a lot about your social standing in the world... And you see that the sort of more aggressive, hyper-competitive, whatever people are rewarded in terms of being viewed as more masculine, it only follows that you would then suppress those things because you're worried about your own social standing. And that's a, it becomes self-reinforcing. Oh, wow. Thank you oh, very much. That's a beautiful-looking Greek salad right there, Michael. Yes, I was just presented with my salad, and my gosh, tremendous. Thank you. Now, traditionally, like a diner Greek salad, we'd be mixed together. This is sort of segregated. So I've got all my feta on one side, followed by my uh, red onion, carrot. It's almost like there's a pile of lettuce, and then there's stripes of ingredients. There's a stripe of cheese, a stripe of carrot. Um, Gorgeous. And this is gorgeous-looking pizza. This pizza has big cubes of feta and also the shredded mozz. This is basically just like a giant – it's like a a, a dough disc covered with – a lot of cheese and a lot of spicy oil. That's right. And a little bit of tomato sauce. It smells very good. Mm. The crust is very nice. It's got a nice light crisp to it. It's not doughy. They do a nice job at Tuzi Pazza. Yeah. The 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 first half of each slice is a little the crust really got soggy. Yeah. But I think that's more That's the thin crust. That's the problem with the thin crust. You're taking that risk. Well, I I, I would suggest that maybe it's it's a fault with the recipe. Mm. Not the I think I think it's a great crust, but it just can't stand up to this much liquid. I think they should cut out the fresh mozzarella and just do like feta, tomatoes, chili oil. A lot of oil has been released and so it's very flimsy. I think I'm going to go fork and knife here. I think there's actually a I think that there's a a masculinity bias even with pizza. Absolutely. I think that there's something with like, that it's somehow considered more effeminate to use a fork and knife. Of course. That's you like can, a sign of weakness. You can rank 
every aspect of every single fucking thing by what's more masculine or less masculine. I'm looking at the pizza. I would say feta cheese, for whatever reason, is slightly less masculine than mozzarella cheese. Why? I don't fucking know, but I feel like that's right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, partly because I think there's just an idea that it's like fancier. <laughs> yes. You know, like, like, but, but eating with your hands is perceived as more oh, masculine. Far so more, like, because it's more primal. Right. Basically, like anything that's more caveman like is considered more masculine. Right. And anything that's a little more continental or European. Right. Or like evolved. Right. <laughs> is considered weak and effeminate. Mm -hmm. I feel like the title of this episode is going to be Michael Ian Black is a man who eats salads. Yeah. I eat a lot of salad now. Yeah. Because of my Jeep. Uh, body issues, which are entirely related to issues around masculinity. How so? When I was young, younger, young, I'm no <laughs> longer. <laughs> I thought I was too skinny, which has its own problems in terms of masculinity because you don't have kind of the muscle definition that it's become associated with masculinity, which is a fairly recent development, by the way. Like if you look at like Superman from the, George Reeves, who played Superman in the 1950s and 60s, he just looked like he just had a dad bod, just looked like a dude, you know, maybe a little bit bigger, but he didn't have like that kind of like Dwayne the Rock Johnson muscularity right? that is kind of demanded of men now, if you really want to be kind of masculine, masculine. Uh, a, a lot of guys, skinny guys feel very emasculated by their physiques and i was one of those guys like i just didn't i never filled out in in my mind in the right way and then one day i woke up and you know i had a little gut and i was in my 40s and i was like oh now i'm morbidly obese and i need to do something about this <laughs> and you know it kind of presents its own problems but it's interesting that, that you did not say to yourself i have arrived no i have a fat gut i'm a man now no 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 because my vanity, my own male vanity doesn't allow it, um, which is another thing that we don't talk about as guys, which is our vanity. And men are vain, but vanity is associated with women, but we're not given permission to express those same anxieties. Like if as a guy, I walk in and I say, I feel really fat today. Like that's a very kind of mock worthy thing to say right. to a group of guys. And they're, they're certainly not going to be like, oh no, you look great. Harold, you look great. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that's just not going to happen right there's almost an idea that, that that the most macho thing you can do is to be like fat and ugly right like like to, to not care how you look like, exactly to, to to be overweight to be dressed like a slob to eat with your hands and then that's the, the the that's how you are the most manly right the kind of, the kind of harvey weinstein model of masculinity which is i'm just a fat slob and i don't give a shit i take what i want and i eat what i want and i fuck what i want and it's all the same thing. It's all the same uh, sort of giving into kind of these primal urges that you were talking about and not giving a shit what anybody thinks or says or does about it. Right. Which, which brings us back to uh, the dinner issues we had in my house last night. You know, the idea that like sometimes it's better not to care about your food, which in, in, which in a way is its own type of masculinity. Being like, fuck it, I don't care, whatever. Just throw some food on a plate, I'll eat it. As opposed to like, I'm going to make it look pretty. Or I'm going to plate it well. Or I'm gonna, it's got to be plated. I want to get nice grill marks on my zucchini. You know? <laughs> right. Not caring is more masculine than caring, which is terrible. But, <laughs> but, but true. Right. But absolutely true. Well, I shouldn't say that. Certain things that you care about are very masculine. If you care about a sports team, very fucking masculine. If you care about your business and that's all you care about and you're driven by it, 
very masculine. But, and we all know this is true, the thing that matters the most, for example, are your kids, your spouse, but caring about those things with the same intensity is somehow not viewed as masculine. I mean, men are viewed as masculine if they're seen as being protectors of their family. Right. Guardians. Providers. Providers, but not nurturers. Right. And as fathers, we need to nurture. We need to be present in our lives, in our kids' lives, excuse me, in a way that they know that we're there, we're present, we're listening, we're available emotionally, and that we're modeling the kind of behavior that will hopefully make them turn out to be decent human beings. Well, Michael, thank you so much. Thanks it's, for lunch. I, I'm an admirer of your I mean, work you haven't offered to pay for it, but I'm just assuming you will. Yeah. Thanks for lunch. <laughs> I will pay for it. That's comedian and actor Michael Ian Black. If you want to listen to more podcast episodes with Michael, check out his show, Obscure. In it, he reads a novel in its entirety. This season, it's Wuthering Heights. And he comments as he goes. And the great thing about it is Michael's never read the book before. So he's reacting in real time. And it feels like you're right there, too, just hanging out with him. It's really fun. Subscribe to that show and The Sporkful in your podcasting app. Remember to get your tickets for our special Cascatelli dinner and a show event at Weights and Measures in Houston. Go to sporkful.com slash live. Remember that next week's Mission Impossible update comes out Tuesday instead of Monday. So if you're looking to fill that void, check out last week's episode about one of the only cookbooks in the Soviet Union. It was part of a radical Soviet food experiment that transformed Russian cuisine forever. That one's up now. Check it out. This episode was originally produced by me, along with Anne Sani and Aviva de Kornfeld. We had editing help from Rob McGinley Myers and Dan DeZula mixed the episode. This update was produced by Johanna Mayer and mixed by Jared O'Connell. Our team also includes Emma Morgenstern, Andres O'Hara, and Tracy Samuelson. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Daisy Rosario. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And we're the fries from... Abilene, Kansas! Reminding you to eat more... Eat better and eat more better. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.